Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. The season of Water for Fighting is sponsored by Sea and Shoreline. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that's on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and to protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. The season's also brought to you by Resource Environmental Solutions. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. More about these good folks a little later. I'm so excited to be with this week's guest, Mike Register. Mike is the executive director of the St. John's River Water Management District, who has spent the last 32 years of his career serving the state of Florida and his region. During his time at the district so far, he's made significant improvements to his regulatory processes, led the development and implementation of regional water supply plans, and led the development and adoption of minimum flows and levels for some of the most iconic springs in Florida. Let's get right to it. Thank you so much for being with me, Mike, here in Palaka. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I appreciate you making the trip to our headquarters here. It's been actually, uh, I think, 15 years since I've been on this yeah. this campus back in the old... Things the old, have changed a yeah. little bit since yeah, then. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Palaka's changed. Definitely. A lot. And that brings me to kind of the first thing, which is you live in a town called Seville, right? That's correct. And it's funny. I I actually... It's weird. I hadn't heard of Seville before, even though... I used to spend summers at Deleon Springs State Park. My grandfather ran the park there. But tell me a little bit about that town. So it's a town that I, I grew up in and went to um, to high school in a nearby town. We didn't. It's not big enough for an actual high school. It doesn't actually have a stoplight. Where was there, the ta- Where was the town that you went to, to Pier- high school? Pearson, which is okay. about you know five miles down the road or so uh, okay. from Seville. But Seville doesn't even have a stoplight. Just a nice caution light. It's a wonderful community, a very loving community. Agricultural operations is, you know, the, pretty much the, the industry that's there, primarily the cut foliage industry, which is what our farm primarily does. It's a great place for a, for a kid to grow up. You mentioned farm. I want to, you know, we'll get to, to some of that in a little bit when we talk about the, the beginning, because your grandfather, did he, was your grandfather one who started the farm in Seville? So there were relatives before that that had the property and operations going on there, but it was my grandfather that got us into the cut foliage uh, industry, and, okay. and specifically leather leaf fern is what he, he started growing there, and that's where um, the farm business really kind of took off. It was orange groves before that, and it slowly kind of shifted over to, to cut foliage and cattle. Hmm. And But your story begins elsewhere and it's and it's a familiar story i've actually had several conversations with folks who their families are from a place but something like in, in your case i think it's the air force that began your story because your father left seville did he leave to join the air force he left to join the air force it was during the vietnam war era mm-hmm. and he he had graduated college uh, from florida state actually with a degree in geology and had decided that he wanted to kind of choose which branch he would be end up going into so he, he chose the air force and, and consequently did his training in san antonio where he met my mother ah and i assume they got sub- subsequently married there because you were born in san antonio texas that's correct i was born me and uh all, my two brothers and my sister were all born okay there in uh in san antonio and you were there till you were about 12 right 
That's correct. Was your dad in the Air Force the entire time, or did he, he kind of got out and then did something else, right? No, he, so he was in the Air Force up until just a little bit before I was born. Mm-hmm. And then while he was there, he had been getting his master's degree in chemistry from a local university, and he started work at the Southwest Research Institute. And, and so that's what he did the time that we lived in Texas up until I was 12 years old. And you said that uh, he ended up becoming a chemist, is that right? Or Yes, uh, a chemist there. And they worked on interesting stuff. Like one of the things he uh, worked on was figuring out what makes peach taste like peach so they could develop some of these artificial wow. ingredients and, and those sorts of things. So we were, uh, and he also did some work on, you know, how pollution and stuff was absorbed by the body. So we were constantly exposed to that science and even maybe, I don't know if guinea pig's the right word, but uh, we were <laughs> maybe research subjects where he would take hair from um, the our haircuts and things and analyze it there to kind of see what, what type of effects or what environmental mm. factors we were absorbing into our bodies. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting, though. I mean, that's, you know, one of those things where, like, how, you know, how does someone become, you know, the person they are later on? And it's like this, you know, amalgamation of all these different experiences. And it sounds like that's a, that's one of those really cool ones. In Texas, you were there till 12. Those are some pretty important years growing up. What was it like? You know, we know what your, your dad was like in terms of experimenting on his children, but <laughs> what, what were you like? What was growing up in in San Antonio like? Uh, we had a pretty, I had a pretty wonderful childhood there. We lived in kind of the suburbs there in San Antonio, so it was a nice, you know, typical suburban neighborhood. And but it, but it was a big city, and so we got used to kind of the city life and the school system that was mm-hmm. there and things like that. So when we made the move to Florida, it was quite a culture shock, even though you know we spent a lot of summers here. It's a, I mean, it's a weird age to move anyway when you're, you know, seventh, eighth grade, something like that, and and you pick up. But so coming, and I was going to ask you that, did you come back during, you know, I I did with my grandparents, you go back to where they are to visit. What were those visits like? I mean, was it kind of a, you know what you were expecting, even though you moved back when you were 12, and that's to live is, you know, in a different place is is always weird, but at least you kind of knew what was coming? We knew what was coming. We spent most of our summers here, and we'd make the trek back and forth between San Antonio and Seville and so we you know knew the country what the country life was about uh, but but living it on a day-to-day basis is a little yeah. different than vacationing there where you're 45 minutes from anything yeah it's a little different from being able to go just down the street to the mall or or, or things like that yeah for sure for sure was that always kind of predetermined for your dad? Did he know that he would always want to move back to, to Seville to, to work the farm? Or was it he, it just kind of worked out that way? I think it might have been a, a little bit in the background, but I, I think it just kind of worked out. And that going back and forth, my grandfather being ready to kind of let go of the farm and let somebody else take it over and continue the family tradition there, I think was the, the factor that made us decide to pick up the family and move. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I want to get to that in a little while in terms of where you are now, because your da- your dad comes back to take over the farm. But even to this day, it's like you said in your email to me that your wife and your son run the family farm, and so that's really cool. That the next generation is kind of picking up that mantle there. So, but I want to I'll get to to that because I want to hear about a little bit about how you see ag's relationship to water and how and the and government in a little bit. But but let's get back to young Mike Register growing up now, going to middle school and high school here where did you go to to middle and high school then was it somewhere else in Pearson or so I had one year high uh, middle school in the sixth grade in Texas and San Antonio before we moved here and I started here in the seventh grade there in Pearson and it was seven through twelve 
all oh. combined into a, a middle high school. So Talk we were, we were, so we were all there together. A very small school. Graduating class, I think, was about eighty-five. Wow. Talking about a bunch of frightened twelve-year-olds, though, having to go into the the yard with a bunch of juniors and seniors. You finish high school, middle high school, and go to the University of Florida to study agriculture engineering. What is agricultural engineering? So a lot of people think of agricultural engineering, and they think that you're designing tractors is kind of the thing that comes to mind. And it's a lot more than that. And they, I know they've changed the name over the years now. I think it's agricultural and biological systems engineering to try to better capture you know, the extent of it, but it really is any and all sciences that are related to the practice of agriculture. And that's changed over the years as agriculture has developed. The track that I went on back then was called the soil and water track. Now they have, I think, a water resource uh, engineering track. It, It focused a lot on the environment and how agricultural interacts with that, groundwater and surface water modeling, yeah. irrigation design, those sorts of things. So it was very you know, related to what we're doing here at the Water Management District. And so that tract of agricultural engineering really fits well and is a good path if you're wanting to go into some type of water management career. Is some of the the technology that we see now that we look for, and I'll ask you about that later on as well, in partnerships that the district has with producers in, in your region, does a lot of that new technology, the new the, the new whiz-bang thing that, that helps you use less water, that helps you use less nutrients while still maintaining that, that productivity, is that, do you get a lot of that from that program? Young folks coming out like yourself and, and saying, hey, I got this really cool idea for, you know, a different way to build this mousetrap? You know, agricultural people have always been innovators, you know, from the time. And so they're always looking for the next best way, you know, that they can do something, you know, either a little better or something that costs a little less or where it uses less materials or can produce more product mm-hmm. um, for the same. And so their partnerships with the ag universities, the land universities like the University of Florida and others, we're these kind of innovative technologies come from. Mm-hmm. And so the need to use less fertilizer, to make more efficient use of it, things like that have driven the innovations that are out there that have that result so that they can work more in concert with the environment. And you finish a master's degree in engineering, the same at University of Florida, right? Yes. Did you think that you were going to use what you learned there when you came a an engineer that you were going to take that back to your own farm or did you imagine that when because you when you left college you're essentially you went straight into water management district right or was it correct no, i went i went straight there from doing a grad, graduate research assistantship and moving into working here at the 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 district and my wife had already, she was a year ahead of me, and she had already graduated and had taken a job teaching vocational agriculture at our old high school, the mm. Pearson High School. And so looking for engineering opportunities within Seville, there's not a big um, menu to choose from uh, when you're looking for that without a lot of commuting. And so St. John's, who actually sponsored a little bit of the research that I did for my master's degree, which was to look at differing irrigation systems to see if there were opportunities to use less water for freeze protecting the the crops there whenever they had to freeze protect them and Mm. still provide the adequate level of protection was what I did my master's thesis on. And so I knew I was aware of them and applied and was fortunate enough to start there as an engineer one working in the regulatory programs. Wow. So out of college and into the fire then is what is what you're telling me. Because what we're looking at 1990 and, and I come from West Central Florida and so that was ground zero for significant water wars over there at the time. Was that the same in 1990 over here? I mean, were there th- those kinds of resource issues? 
not to the extent maybe in, in some other places, but we are beginning to see impacts from that. One example from the area that I was in is everybody had put in you know their irrigation systems for these cut foliage, and without really thinking about the fact that during freeze protection, everybody would flip on at once. Hmm. And so it's kind of like the strawberry areas that are in southwest Florida. Here we had an area to where when everybody turned on at once for a long period of time, it really dropped the aquifer. People lost pressure in their wells. Hmm. Problems like that all occurred. And so we were right in the midst of working with the growers at that time to try to find a solution. And the growers actually ended up banding together to create a fund to replace people's wells so that they mm. could take care of the issue and, and, and mitigate for the, the impacts that occurred whenever they did freeze protect. Did part of the technology you worked on for your thesis help in that, that regard, or was it still kind of in the, the testing phase? Back it, then? it ended up being incorporated into the consumptive use permits to mm. where for a certain type of fernery is what they're, they're called where they grow those that they lowered the rates that you use for freeze protection to to a lower rate using different sprinklers as as the you know best available technology at the time that's continued to improve over time and even now we cost share with growers that are implementing better uh, sprinkler systems that can do a better job of, of freeze protecting with less water I like it. So 1990, you're at the district, you're in regulatory services, which is, I find, always find stressful to say the least. But I want to talk about you specifically. So it's not often that you have, we're now 32, two years, now 33 years, you said in in August is your anniversary, that you have a water management district executive director that comes up in that same water management district. I mean, it's been done a few times where someone, you know, is in one place and they go to another. But it's been a while since there's been someone, uh, you and Brian Armstrong, I think, are the only ones, certainly the only ones right now, that have come all the way through that. Tell me about the path from where you started to, I know it's like it's not a fair question because I'm asking you to, is it, can you describe 32 years uh, without it taking, uh, you know, five hours? So you start in regulatory services. You're like, hey, this is, this is great. How long did you spend in regulatory services at the district? The majority of my career was spent uh, within the regulatory services. I can still remember the first day back in 1990 in August, August 24th, 1990, coming to the district, sitting in my car 30 minutes early, you know, ready to go in and waiting on the clock to hit eight and thinking, you know, what am I going to do sitting in this office for eight hours? Because I've never had an office job before mm-hmm. that. It had always been either working on the farm or working doing graduate research work, which involved building facilities and monitoring them and, and data collection and those sorts of things. I wasn't really sure what was, was going to be in store for me, but going in and learning about it and the people were so helpful. Actually, the first person that I was teamed up with, Brad Purcell, hmm. is now my chief of staff here at the district. Nice. And so we got to work together very early there and learning about how we were protecting the resource and the rules that were in place and enforcing those. And, and the biggest thing th- that kind of cropped up early was the, the need to kind of help people through that permitting process mm-hmm. and how you realized how it could be a potential obstacle to, to people you know, getting what they need to have done while still protecting the environment. And so that kind of became a goal of mine was to get to a position to be able to affect policy in the way that we do things so that we can partner with people so that they can get their needs met, but we can still you know, do the protection that's required to protect our, our precious water resources here in Florida. I want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at Res. Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders. 
but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, Res addresses the complex challenges facing our state with their unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, Res is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, that's certainly, you know, how I approach things when, when I was in, you know, my much smaller chair up north. But is that your philosophy is like, hey, you know, we've got a job to do, but services, you know, is what we're doing. And I'm going to use my expertise the best I can to, to help people solve problems in that way. So, you're, so you get out of the, the chair and onto people's farms or into utility or local government. Is that kind of the... And I think, you know, that's, and working my way through, I just kind of worked my way, you know, engineer one to engineer two, to Mm -hmm. engineer three, to PE, to chief engineer for regulatory, to eventually director of regulatory services. But throughout that, looking for ways that you can work together with people and, and, and that staff, that's the applicant, the public, Mm -hmm. uh, everybody looking for ways that everybody can kind of pull on the rope in the same direction to get to that common goal has been kind of a common philosophy of how I approach things with hmm. with any problem. I think engineers are naturally kind of driven toward that problem-solving mentality to where you see a problem, you want to attack it and solve it. Mm-hmm. But the thing you need to learn is you don't have to do it by yourself. You've got people out there that you can team up with that maybe know a lot more about the particular situation than you do mm-hmm. and, and use that to, to work toward a better solution. Oh, that, sounds, that sounds great. At what point in that process did you start to think, I want to be, I want to do this for the rest of my career. I want to be here the rest of my career. So I think it was very actually early on, um, you know, maybe the first five years that I was here, you know, you're still in that, that phase of, you know, am I just doing this to kind of learn a little bit enough about it so that you can jump out and do other things. But I truly fell in love with the district's mission and the opportunity to, you know, help people also see that and, and, and accomplish that. And it's something that, you know, I've told my staff along and along, and I know they're sick of hearing it, but I <laughs> uh, also talk about it with all the new staff that are coming in about how proud they should be of the work that they're doing. And that something that I do every day when I get in my car to leave, I try to take just a moment, you know, to think about, you know, the work that was done that day with the people and the fact that the environment I and mean, the state is better off because of the work that we did that day and and take pride in that and mm-hmm. kind of let that recharge you so that you're ready to take on the issues the yeah. next day. And I, I don't think that, you know, can be understated the pride that people should take here at, at each of the districts and mm-hmm. the work that we do. 
And I think that's important. I don't think that's something that people realize, that folks at the district could do something else. Almost every single person here, engineers, geologists, accountants, you, you name it, there's someplace else that's paying a whole bunch more for what they do for a living. And so you have to really want to serve. You have to really care about what you're doing or you won't last that long doing it. And I don't think that people realize that what folks like yourself give up. And I guess it's not a sacrifice if you love it and it works for you, but I don't think people realize what talented folks could do on the other side of the table when it comes to, to these kinds of... Uh, and that, that is something that I think people don't, like you said, realize. We have some of the most talented scientists and, and researchers, uh, engineers, every level of every part of the district mm -hmm. that are here, not because you know this is their only choice, but here because the they believe in the mission and they want to accomplish something and they could do other things in other places for, for more money. And one of the things I've tried to work on as executive director is not to take advantage of that willingness to serve and that dedication to that mission and try to, you know, get them the tools and the salaries and, and the things that they need so that they can not have to sacrifice quite as much, right. uh, you know, as they're, they're putting their talents to work for the good of, of the state. Sure. And let's talk about that because you've mentioned you mentioned the service part. You've mentioned the, the teamwork part, and so I want to talk about a few water resource highlights you know, under your watch over that time. And I want to mention the first one because it was really important uh, to me in, in Northwest, and that's permitting process reforms. When I was at the district, we were a, and still are, I believe, a direct beneficiary of the work that this district has done when it comes to e-permitting, database work, things like that. Can you talk about some of that work that, that you did to make it easier for the public to work with the district when it comes to, to getting their permits and dealing with those issues? Yeah, you know, when I originally was made the director of regulatory services, where I was over the environmental resource permitting and the consumptive use permitting process, one of the things I did was basically talk to every staff member um, that we had and talk to them about, you know, what are the issues that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? What are the things that make it more difficult to do your job? And then we also did the same thing with the consulting world and uh, with the environmental community. We went out and talked to them about, you know, what is their frustrations and things like that. And one of the things that we learned was that the permitting process by nature, the way we had it set up, was an adversarial process. <laughs> so you think about it, you have this person on the outside that has been working on this development, you know, for months, maybe years, to get their plans all worked out, and they're ready, and they submit it to the district, and the first communication that they get back often was just a letter basically telling them everything that's wrong with their project. And so what is the <laughs> natural tendency that you have, especially yeah. as an engineer, you want to defend what you put in rather than kind of look at it from the light of, okay, well, yeah, we could do this better. We could, we could do that. And so trying to overcome that and work together, we really push toward working early and often with the consultants. You know, if they have a difficult project, encouraging them to come in during the pre-application phase. So mm. If you think about building a house and you want to have an issue with that first brick that you lay, well, it's a lot easier to move that first brick before you put the roof on you know, right, than, right. It, than it is afterward. And so a, a little bit more of a willingness to look at maybe different water table elevations or, or look mm -hmm. at that wetland line. If we can get that you know done up early and they haven't already based their whole design on it, it they're maybe more willing to look at our side of the, the, the picture. And so really pushing that whole thing of, okay, you have your development that you have to get done. We have the resources that we want to protect, and they want to protect them too. It's not mm -hmm. like they're sure. evil about it. And so let's work together. 
you know, toward getting that. And I think the idea of that and also increasing communication. So, you know, having staff call them and talk to them versus mm-hmm. communicating via letter, I think has helped a lot too. All of those things combined to really kind of shift the paradigm to where they realize, hey, we're here to help. We know it's a difficult process and we know you have a lot of other processes you have to go through to get a development. Mm-hmm. We're just one small part of it, but we're the experts on our small part of it. So let us help you get through that process where you have an environmentally sound project, but it also meets the goals uh, that you have. And I think that's helped a lot with speeding up and making more uh, more efficient the permitting process without losing the environmental protection that it's designed to have. Right. I think sometimes people see water management districts as a as a no machine or a yes machine, depending on who you're talking to. But, but when I've seen it at Swift Mud and certainly Northwest, and it sounds like here is the idea is you've got talented engineers and geologists and environmental scientists working for you. A lot of that time, it's helping them figure out how to change something to get to yes. So rather than having to do the no, the no machine, you can you can help someone. It's like, hey, if you do this a little bit differently or have you looked at it from this angle, I think you can get there. It's just going to look a little bit different. But I like your analogy about at that first brick rather than when the roof on or, you know, you're, you're starting to put windows in and then somebody says, hey, by the way, your first brick is all terrible. So I, I like that a lot. Another one of the most consequential responsibilities of water management districts, and I think yours is the one I dealt with. For you're in Swift Mud, going back, one was the the Peace River MFL, but one is near and dear to my heart. It, you know, in terms of minimum flows and minimum levels for lakes, rivers, springs, aquifers, etc. My grandfather, his he retired from the Navy, and his first job is to join the Florida Park Service, and his first job was at at Blue Spring State Park. I remember later on, some years, some years later, y'all were working on the minimum flow for, for Blue Spring. I think the, the spring and the run itself. Talk a bit about the process of developing an MFL, because I think some people think that it's like, hey, you just, you know, lick your thumb and stick it in the air and, you know, and then pick a number, but a whole lot of work goes into that. I would say that uh, developing minimum flows and levels is probably the most complex work that we do here at the district. And it involves a tremendous amount of, um, of research into that resource and determining where that threshold is to where any further withdrawals are going to occur, significant harm is going to occur. And so it's kind of like the backstop against significant harm occurring. And a lot of people, because of the name, they think it's a minimum level. Mm. Uh, so the lake reaches this level. Uh, as long as it's above it, it's meeting it. If it's below it, it's not meeting it. Right. You know, as long as the spring is flowing above this flow, it's meeting it. If it's below it, it's not meeting it. But it's not. It's much more complicated than that. What we what we look at is for the resources there, for the water resources that need protecting at a particular water body or spring. We know that those flows and levels change as the weather mm-hmm. affects it. So seasonality of the weather, we go through droughts, we go through periods of heavy rain, they naturally go up and down. And that's part of what makes the ecosystem there healthy. It, requ- it requires some of that to be that way in most instances. And so what we have to look at is for those particular water resources, say when it does go down, what amount of pumping is going to cause it to go down either further or for a longer period of time or more frequently. And so the levels that we do in our district, they have the component of the actual level and then they have a, a duration component of how you know far it's going to be below that level and then a frequency component of how often is it going to do that. And we look at all of those through a bunch of complicated modeling and analysis and we come up with a state for that that we can adopt, that we can show, okay, as long as we keep it above this, 
uh, and, it, and it stays above this for this period of time, and it does that every so many years, the ecosystem is going to be protected from mm-hmm. significant harm. I think we have over maybe close to 140 MFLs now in, in wow. our district. We're still working on completing that so that we have a network that can basically protect the whole entire district from that and use them as sentinel MFLs. And we've done all of our outstanding Florida Springs within the district. But to me, it is one of the most challenging things that we do as far as communicating to the general public, you know, Mm. what what that MFL is and what it means uh, and how it's enforced. All right, let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Even in that, I think a lot of folks won't get how interwoven all the processes that surround that. So you, you're collecting data, you're looking at environmental transects, you're looking at you know flow data, water quality data, habitat you know data, but that's just one part of it of a of a broader picture. The other the other part of that is Mike Register in regulatory services has to figure out now how do how do I write new rules and regulations for how we permit water based on uh, as you say a minimum flow or a minimum level that is not static. It's not a stack number so you can't say gosh we'll do 10 million more gallons per day and that's the line, right? It it changes based on on situation. And and then you have the thing that we haven't even talked about yet which is you now have to plan for how you're go- how if if the line is for for a particular period or particular places 10 million gallons of water a day but the MFL says gosh sometimes it, you only got eight here under these circumstances it's your job to then find where that other 2 million gallons a day come from and that's and so all those things coming together that's pretty complicated business. I'm trying to find a spot. Maybe maybe you pick a spot where you can talk about how that intersection worked and then how you ended up solving, you and your folks, obviously, ended up solving that problem. Not solve it, you know, but figure out how to move forward given all those constructs around it. And that's where it ties into our water supply planning process. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the primary missions that the districts are charged with is doing water supply planning and utilizing uh, these minimum flows and levels as the resource constraints within that water supply plan. We look out 20 years and we determine, okay, can the resources that we're pulling from, primarily the Florida aquifer is Mm -hmm. where the majority of our drinking water in our district comes from, can it sustain those withdrawals that are going to be needed and still meet these minimum flows and levels and other resource constraints. And a lot of times in most areas, we're getting to the point where it, it cannot, that you know, just doing things the way that we've been doing them is not going to be sufficient to both meet our water demands and meet the environmental protection goals that, mm. we, that we want to accomplish. And so what that requires is more working together with utilities, with other users, with agricultural communities to develop options 
um, that are available, project options, alternative water supplies other than the, the, the Floridan, you know, we're charged with developing sufficient projects to where that demand will be met and the environmental water resources will also be protected. And so examples of that, uh, Silver Springs is a good mm-hmm. example. And we developed an MFL for that that was in prevention. And so when we do a minimum flower level, we look out 20 years, just like in that water supply planning process, and determine, okay, if if the demands go like we think they're going to go, will that MFL continue to be met? And in that case, determine that it wouldn't, that at some point mm-hmm. it was going to trip the threshold. So we used the tools in our toolbox, one being regulatory, mm-hmm. you know, that basically um, they were good up until 2025, I think it was, for, for that one. And they had to show where their water was coming from after that. And the other was projects. We worked with, the, in that case, the city of Ocala and Marion County to come up with projects that would make the water pie bigger. And one of them that was very successful there was the recharge project there at Silver Springs. And the city has worked to develop a wetland recharge park to where they take stormwater runoff, reclaimed water that's been treated uh, to high standards, and they run it through a created wetland that was a golf course and uh, then allow that to recharge right there by the spring. So it basically primes the pump for the spring and allows them to meet their water demands while still protecting probably one of the most iconic springs we have here in Florida. Yeah, indeed. I, mean, I grew up going there, and so it's uh, it's in- incredible that you're doing that kind of work. Tell me about the other side of that, because you mentioned the prevention strategy. Uh, sometimes you're stuck in a position where you've got a recovery strategy because it's currently not meeting. Once you determine you know, a, a minimum flow or minimum level, and it's not meeting that, is it the same? Essentially, do you see it as the same process, just with, you know, sometimes you're just talking about more water? Do you treat it differently? kind of the same tools that you're looking at it's just you you want to get that goal of getting that resource back and you know example we had of that is the mfls that we recently did on lakes brooklyn and geneva nearby to the district and that was one to where we were able to partner with the legislature dep with the local utilities who all put in monies toward the black creek project which is basically taking water from where we have too much water and recharging it uh, via the lakes there to where we need more water. Uh, And so that project is basically able to solve that MFL for the foreseeable future with the water demands that are projected out. Talk a, a little bit about that, or maybe I just, you know, mentioned you have one, you have a board member that's a former legislator, and you know, and people may or may not know that in order to accomplish these goals, you're you're not doing it on an island. It, you know, it's you have your team. Sometimes you work with a neighboring water management district, like with the Central Florida Water Initiative. But you have you know your legislative delegation. You have DEP, Fish and Wildlife folks like that. Can you you know, just talk a little bit about the importance of those kinds of of partnerships and and that mutual understanding and desire to to meet the same goal. And, you know, that's critical in order to be successful, especially in the type of projects that we're trying to do that are really going to move the needle toward creating more water supply, improving water quality, and and solving some of the environmental issues that we have. And so without the support of the legislature, without the support of the governor's office, and without the support of our local partners, those projects just wouldn't be feasible. No one group is going to be able to take those on by themselves, but working all together, some providing funding, some like the district providing expertise and, and scientific knowledge and, and others providing access like utilities to, you know, to, to help with some of these projects. That's what makes them be able to, to move forward and make a difference. And like I said, moving that needle uh, where we want to, to try to uh, recover in some instances and, and protect in others. 
a lot of people think that water management district is solely flood protection if you look at South Florida Water Management District or water quantity. But we have four areas of responsibility and and two of those are almost all directly related to to water quality. One is water quality written as water quality and the other is natural systems. And the districts have taken on those responsibilities as well when it comes to the spring restoration and protection program, etc. Is the Silver Spring Project a part and parcel of that? The, the, The wetland treatment area, the, the wetland park, I think you, as you described it, is that also a part of improving water quality in terms of taking that stormwater, putting it through a wetland treatment system and before it goes to the spring as well? So it improves both water quality and and the water quantity for the spring by taking stormwater that would go in the ground otherwise and, and providing some additional treatment for it by putting it through this treatment wetland, you know, will improve the water that's recharged into the aquifer and ultimately comes out into the spring. Other work that we've done in that area with them is getting septic to sewer to where we get some of these septic systems that were put in a long, long time ago and may not be as effective and may be failing and connecting them to a centralized sewer system, especially those right by the spring that has a great ability to remove the you know the nitrogen and, and nutrients and other things that we we don't necessarily want going right into the spring and taking them treating them removing them and then putting them ultimately through something like this wetland treatment system to get the water back in the ground mm-hmm. without the constituents that we don't want in there and I think in talking about some of those issues you mentioned septic tanks it's, it's a hobby horse of mine in in dealing with those because there's so many in the state of Florida but huge issue in the news I think rightfully so when you're talking about manatee losses and and habitat loss for for other fish and animals is the Indian River Lagoon yeah, I think it stretches across two water management districts, actually. How are you working with not just the department, but with your your colleague, Drew Bartlett, at South Florida and his team to help solve some of those issues? The, the, the legislature just passed uh, a bill, I think it's House Bill 1379, with the Indian River Lagoon restoration program. I'll probably get the term wrong, but the issue is the same. It's like, how do you see that working toward your mutual goal in terms of improving water quality there. Well, and that's where they've really kind of stepped up, you know, bringing $100 million to the table from the governor's Freedom First budget and Mm -hmm. and the legislature, you know, stepping up to fulfill that is going to make us make it possible to do projects that can move the needle down there. We've already gotten money through partners like DEP and others to do projects. We have a Cranes Creek project that's going to take water. And what happened, uh, one of the contributing factors to the problems that are happening in the lagoon is a lot of the water uh, runoff that was originally designed to go toward the river, uh, or naturally, I mm. guess not designed, to go toward the river, was ditched and drained back to the lagoon. So it puts unwanted fresh water into the lagoon, and it also puts unwanted nutrients into the lagoon. And so the Crane Creek Project is one that's looking at, at reversing that that flow to where we take water that was diverted and basically kind of re-diverting it back after Hmm. providing water quality treatment for it. So it is getting the pollutants out of the Indian River Lagoon, and it's restoring flows to the St. Johns River. Um, And so we have that and another project, C10 project, that we're working on down there that are big projects would not be possible without the help of DEP and the legislature and the governor's office and local partners. But those are ones that are truly going to start to work to move the needle on uh, improvements there in the lagoon. 
ask you a question like uh, in you're a farmer you come from a farming family you know i have my own opinions about it i think that florida you know florida has decided it you know it's going to have uh, millions and millions of people here and millions and millions of people eat food and so and live and that requires food and food requires growing and growing requires water and nutrients what's the relationship between the district in that that understanding of whether it be the Inner River Lagoon or the Everglades or Tampa Bay, pick a place that that there's a balance to be to be had. Meaning we've got responsibilities in terms of water quality, but at the same time we're we're talking about we're the reason why those potential impairments might exist to begin with. How do how do you see that relationship? Because you're again, it's like you're I mean you're somebody who understands the day to day running of of a farm. You know, one of the things that I think people don't realize is that agricultural operations aren't out to try to harm the environment. They aren't out to, you know, they actually love the land as much as anybody. And so, you know, they're willing partners to work toward it. The, the problems that come up is that their business models don't necessarily have the room to pass along added expenses to the consumer. And, and so that's where partnering with the district through our ag cost share program, you know, allows us to work with them to implement measures that'll reduce that nutrient runoff and it benefits them if they pump less and they use less fertilizer that's less cost mm-hmm. um, for them right and it's better for the environment and so it's a great partnership you know that, that that comes out of that and one that I think has been very successful agriculture you know other than water uh, which you won't last very long without <laughs> uh, you know all life requires water but you know you, you go hungry for a couple of days and you're going to have problems too and right. so when we talk about resiliency and resiliency in water supply you know having a resilient agricultural industry that i think is key food security is key to our national interest and so finding ways that we can work together so that we have that resilient food supply that allows us to do everything mm-hmm. else that we want to do as far as moving the country forward is is critically important and so that's where i i think it's one of the responsibilities of the water management districts is to partner up with them to help them get where they need to be so that we protect that critical environment but we also protect our food supply i saw a a short video about uh, essentially it's a a new way of applying pesticides but it could be used for fertigation as well or what have you and it was fascinating like it reads individual plants so when you look at something it knows it's okay well this plant needs x or this i don't recognize this plant as as a corn stalk so it's got to go what role like who's our is, is our next norman borlaug a ai robot or do you think it's it takes that the combination of the talented folks that that you other water management districts dep you know other you know other ngos or do you think how much promise do you see in in that artificial intelligence to be able to help solve some of those problems challenges really into the future to make sure people get fed but at the same time we've got to we got to reduce the amount of water and nutrients we use so I think there's a little bit of a difference between artificial intelligence and utilizing the technology and stuff that we have with our command and control on it. It's a difficult issue about, and I know everybody's struggling with, about how far can AI go. Mm-hmm. Um, but u- utilizing the technologies and the, the computer programs and things like that, like the example that you have, we've cost-shared on items where they have precision fertilizers to where they do the same thing. They can monitor, they see where a plant is and where a plant isn't, and mm-hmm. they don't apply it where the plant isn't, and they apply it dependent upon the size of the, the plant and, and things like that. So it's the technology improvements, which agriculturalists are 
very willing to embrace. Sure. I think there's tremendous strides that remain to be realized in that by utilizing those new technologies. We're already doing it, but that and soil mapping, you know, and using GIS coverages and things like that mm-hmm. where you can basically differ the amount that you apply depending on the soil type that that tractor or whatever the applicator is, is running over is another one to where you won't have, you know, either leaching losses or runoff losses because you're only putting the amount of fertilizer that that soil can handle in mm-hmm. there. And the same thing with irrigation, you know, being able to alter our irrigation dependent upon differing soil types and what that water holding capacity is there with the soil moisture sensors. All of those things are just continually making it more and more efficient. And as we do that, it'll lessen the unwanted inputs to the environment, right. um, which the, the agriculturists don't want to have happen. Right. Uh, and we don't want to have happen. And so that's it, another common goal, you know, that we can work together toward. Yeah, I, and I've noticed the same thing. Is I, I was pleasantly surprised early on at how willing to experiment farmers are. If you if you help them see the benefit, not just you know environmentally, but also financially, it's like there's almost nothing they won't try to to, to do it better. They are definitely the original innovators. That's right. Uh, That's and so they've, they've done that all throughout history. You know, finding a better way. And and American agricultural industry I think has led the world in in that innovation of you know how can we do more with less. Uh, and I think that's key, you know, to the future of our state and our nation. Well, now let's move into I, sometimes I call it like a lightning round, but I pretty much ask about the same question to to all the guests. Uh, some of them are unfair because it asks you to you know pick pick a thing, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> what professional accomplishment are you most proud of? It could be philosophical. It didn't have to be like, hey, I made this widget. It could be philosophically. I th- I feel like you know we've accomplished X. So when I see staff that I've had the opportunity to work with and mentor succeed, you know, and move on and up, even if it's out with another agency or out with another group, mm. I think that's what gives me the most pride that I've been able to help somebody, you know, realize their career development goals. And so it's more of a personal thing than a, you know, like you said, yeah. fixing a widget or, or fixing whatever. Right. Nothing really approaches that feeling that you get, you know, if you're able to see somebody succeed that you helped give a little push here or a little, or just give them the tools that they needed in order to get there, which yeah. is all it takes in, in a lot of cases. I like it. What's your great white whale? What's the water resource challenge that you're most anxious to solve, Ahab-like anxious to solve? I really feel like, you know, educating the public and and everybody about, you know, the fragility of our water balance that we have here in the state of Florida and making them understand, you know, we're blessed with a lot of water, but our ecosystems were were created as a result of that water. And so mm-hmm. the difference that we have, the, the small difference that we have that we're able to utilize for other means, you know, making them aware of the importance of that, making them aware of the importance of everyday actions that they take and what that can either help or hurt the environment is something that we're going to work toward here at the district now of, of trying to improve our education program and, and outreach so that people are aware of that. And then when they're aware of that, you have an ally now that can help you accomplish these other, maybe what seemed like insurmountable goals of, of fixing some of our resources that need fixing and protecting those that are fortunately still in pristine condition. Nice. Given that, are you optimistic about the future of the environment and these natural systems in Florida or, or in your in your neck of the woods? I'm very optimistic about it. I feel like um, 
everyone has has started to realize the importance of that. So the legislators, you know, the state government, the district, some of our partners. I think we've had some success or some successes that we can point toward to where we've had cooperative agreements like the Black Creek project where everybody, you know, instead of we started off kind of fighting on that one where mm-hmm. we're all arguing and fighting and and trying to tear down each other's positions. But when we switch to hey, let's work together uh, you know, to solve the resource and each use what we can each bring to the table to do that. And, and if we can point to successes like that and build upon it, I, I don't think there's anything that we can't solve here within the state. What, if anything, keeps you up at night regarding <laughs> water resources in Florida, the environment in general? I mean, is it related to, I think you mentioned earlier, ag resilience? Uh, is it something related to, to food? Is it water quality? What do you think? I think, you know, us being able to evaluate changes in weather patterns and things like that what, that we seem to be experiencing with some areas receiving more intense storms and, and things like that. In the past, we've been able to look and have the, you know, the past record be a great predictor of, of what we are, plan to see in the future. But some of that's starting to change a little bit as we start to see some of the conditions change. And, you know, I think there's great efforts going on in the state right now of updating some of our storm models and things like that. And so how do we handle the existing infrastructure that's out there? The new stuff we can build toward uh, new standards and things like that that are going to, but the existing structure that, that are out there and, and how we deal with some of those, you know, is going to be a challenge, I think, especially over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, that makes sense. You talked a little bit about it earlier in terms of accomplishment, but but specifically, what advice would you give to young people who are either just starting? What what advice do you give to the young Mike Register that that just comes out of out of school and starts here at the district, or they're just they're interested or thinking about entering public service? Not to underestimate the the wonderful feeling that you get from from working in public service. I I think that's something you can't truly understand until you've experienced it and and feel good about it. And to you know not let some of the pressures. And I think that's one of the things that you know, gives me some hope with some of the new generation, you know, that's coming through is they do seem more engaged in the quality of life and the the feeling of purpose and, and things like that, and rather than making money and mm-hmm. rather than, you know, I, I got to get this so that I can have this house and I can have this car, mm-hmm. that there are things out there that can give you more joy, you know, than, than those sorts of things and public service and, and working to protect the environment for future generations. There's not a lot that's a whole lot more rewarding than that. I think that's a perfect place to end. Mike Register, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and CN Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy 
in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.